Okay, so if you're, last week we did an introduction to the book of Leviticus. So if you weren't here last week, we do encourage you to go back and listen to that because Leviticus is a unique book. I mean, Leviticus is the third book of the Bible. It is part of what's called the Torah or the Pentateuch. It's the law. And basically what we see in the, in the law, in those first five books of the Bible, is that God identifies a people and these people he's going to use to bring about the story of redemption in the globe. In Exodus, we see God forming those people out of slavery in Egypt and establishing them as a new covenant people. And then at the end of Exodus, we see that although God has chosen them and they've built the tabernacle, which is sort of like a portable place of worship, we realize that they can't enter into the tabernacle because the tabernacle has been filled with God's presence and uh, sinful people are unable to enter into the presence of a holy God. And so the whole book of Leviticus, which is a book, frankly, that a lot of people just wind up skipping, is, um, is all about how a, whole, a sinful people can be in the presence of a holy God. Okay, and that's the whole point of Leviticus. And so what we're going to do today, it might be a little bit different from a normal sermon that you guys are accustomed to just because of the nature of the book. And so we're just going to be reading and commenting as we go along. And then as after we finish the chapter, we're going to tie this up with how this points to Jesus um, and what this means practically for us, who are people who are living in what we call the new covenant. In other words, these things are hindsight for us, that you probably are glad I didn't bring a pigeon today to rip its head off and throw this blood on the side of the music stand, as we're going to read in the fourth paragraph of Leviticus chapter 1. Okay? And so I'm just going to bring us in here. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring the offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. So I just want to mention a couple things here before we go any further. Um, when we have this, there's this structure that you see here, the Lord calls, Moses meets the Lord, and then the Lord gives some kind of a command. And this is the third time this has happened in the Torah. The first two times are in the book of Exodus when God is giving Moses the law. And essentially every time this happens, it's this distribution of covenantal law given to Moses. Now, the reason this is significant is because the first two times it happens, it happens on Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is the place where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, right? That's the mountain that was so holy because of the presence of God that when God said, have the people come up, they said to Moses, please go up on our behalf because we're afraid that if we go too close to the mountain, we will die. Okay, And so there was this holy presence on Mount Sinai as God was giving the law to Moses. And what's significant is that they are no longer out at Mount Sinai. And so the fact that God is giving Moses this covenantal law in the same format of God calling, Moses meeting, God giving an edict, okay? The fact that that pattern is repeated here is authenticating the tent of meeting as a, as a form of portable Mount Sinai. 
Okay, so Mount Sinai was where God's presence was dwelling with Moses, but now God's presence has moved from Mount Sinai to in the midst of the people. And this is significant because it's authenticating the presence of God that is now moving into the people's um, midst. So when we see this happen in the Torah, essentially what I said before last week, I talked about how God is like a king and the people of Israel are like his subjects and he's instructing them how the king and the subjects interact with one another. And so he's meeting with Moses in front of the tent of meeting, which is another way of saying the tabernacle. By the way, tent of meeting and tabernacle are identical things. But what you need to think about this from an ancient Near Eastern perspective is that this is kind of like God's portable throne room, okay? And so God the king is calling Moses to come to his throne room so he can give Moses something and Moses will then pass it on to the people. And so essentially what we have happening here is we have a covenant, we have covenantal laws being given to covenantal people for a covenantal kingdom. And covenant is a stronger way of saying promise, okay? But the idea here is that God is, give, is as a covenantal king, a king who has a promise with the people, he's giving them laws so that they know how to live in his kingdom. And what's interesting about these laws, and this is why all of this ties into the New Testament so seamlessly, what's interesting about these laws is that each of these laws... Uh, these laws either have a vertical focus or they have a horizontal focus. In other words, these laws have to do with how we, inter- or how God's covenantal people, the Israelites here, how they would interact with God, but also how they would interact with one another, and then how they would interact with the world. And so this is why Jesus quotes later in Matthew 22, he says that, The entirety of the law can be summarized as love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, on these two commandments stand all the law and the prophets. And so essentially, all of the covenantal laws that are being distributed by Moses from the Lord are falling under that umbrella of what we would call in the New Testament the law of Christ, right? Or people would say the golden rule or something like that. And so there's, it's interesting for you to realize because we get into Leviticus and you say, well, how come we don't do this anymore? Like, how come we don't stone our children if they disobey? And you start having these kinds of questions, but realize that the essence of the law, the horizontal and vertical aspects of relationship, they continue on with perpetuity, right? And so the essence of the law remains even though the application of the law changes because of culture and time and a bunch of other things that we're going to talk about as we progress through. Okay, so the Lord calls Moses to him, and essentially Moses comes to the front of his portable um, house, his portable palace, and God is going to speak to them, speak to Moses to give him these case laws. And these case laws, I think I mentioned last week to you, that this is in the structure of a famous type of document called a a vassal document. It's like a king and his subjects. And you see this structure when it says, if this, when this, if this, when this, then. And so that's the structure we see. If his offering, then this is what he shall do. Okay? So it says, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. 
Now, there's a couple things I want to note here in verse 2 before we move on to verse 3. It's going to be a long sermon series, right? <laughs> okay? What I want you to know in verse 2 is this. He says, when any one of you, okay? And so realize that there's one of the questions that's going to come to your mind in a couple of verses is, is this just men doing sacrifices? No, it's when any one of you. But this is what he says. He says, brings an offering. And this is something that I've just been realizing recently as I've been going through this study, um, and maybe some of you already knew it. Good for you. Um, there's a vast difference between offerings and sacrifices. But as New Testament Christians, we tend to kind of lump everything together, right? But there's actually a big difference between offerings and sacrifices. The easiest way to know if it's an offering or a sacrifice, by the way, is that in, the, in these laws, the offerings go entirely to God, 100%. But the sacrifices, the sacrificer or the priest always takes part in sharing and eating it, okay? So this is an offering that is being given to God. All right, we're going to continue in verse 3. Now, if, that's the beginning of that case law structure, if his offering is a burnt offering, or it should more accurately be written as, is a whole burnt offering, because the entirety of it was offered, if his offering is a whole burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay or butcher, uh, skin and butcher, the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water because those aspects are considered unclean. That goes to ceremonial purity laws later in the book. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now, for most people, halfway through that paragraph, you went like this. <laughs> right? It's, a, it's tedious to read. It's tedious to read. But we're going to pour heavily into this paragraph because the next two paragraphs are basically redundant. The difference between the following paragraphs is... It said, this first paragraph is if the offering is from the herd. The next paragraph is from the flock. And the third one is from a bird, okay? Of, and so the idea is, it's like, well, this meal is at Peter Shields. This meal is Lucky Bones. And this meal is the Burger King that used to be Dunkin' Donuts, okay? <laughs> and so that's the structure there in terms of, it's like, you know, when you go to a menu, and it's like $3 signs, $2 signs, $1 sign. So from the herd, from the flock, and a bird. Okay, so the, the offering, this offering is something that you would give from the herd, and you would bring it to God. Now look what it says about it. It says, one, it says it has to be without blemish. Okay, 
Uh, this, remember that we have this framework in the Bible of a pure and spotless lamb, okay? A pure and spotless lamb that would be a sacrifice that you couldn't just bring to God. Uh, you know, you had to do a sacrifice and offering, and so you bring your sheep that has six legs, and it's kind of like a mutant sheep. Like, what are you going to do with it? So you bring it as an offering. No, this is bringing God the best. This is bringing God something that is perfect. This is what's significant when we see John the Baptist, he looks at Jesus and he says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. You know, people say, well, why did Jesus have to be the sacrifice and not, you know, Frank? Well, Frank isn't pure and spotless, but Jesus was pure and spotless. He was without sin. Hebrew says that he was tempted in with all ways, but was without sin. And so Jesus was a pure and spotless sacrifice. So all of this Levitical language is looking forward to Christ. And we're going to see that more clearly as we continue. So he, he being the, the offerer. Okay. And so that's any of you. I, and I, it's, I want you to put yourself in this story. Okay. Because we have, like I called before, Sunday school theology. We water things down, and we kind of dumb it down, and we whitewash it. I want you to put yourself in the story. So he, he being you, he shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, comma, that he may be accepted before the Lord. I've said to you guys before that in English, when we have commas, and different languages mark it differently in terms of syntax and grammar, but in other words, what he's saying is, he shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, comma, meaning for what purpose? So that he may be accepted before the Lord. So some of you are familiar with the book of Esther, right? It's uh, maybe not the most common book in the Old Testament to be read, but some of you are familiar with it. And one of the premise of the book of Esther is that Esther has the power to stand before the king because she's his wife, and she can come to him and she can ask for something, but the king has a scepter, and it is very dangerous to approach the king if you weren't invited. And when someone comes, the king with his scepter can either determine whether you're going to live or whether you're going to die, okay? This is very different from our own current culture where we, we lack any semblance of decorum, okay? And so you need to realize that the idea here is you have a king who's far more powerful and sovereign and terrifying than Artaxerxes, the king from Esther, and you go to the entrance of his palace at the tent of meeting, right? You're at the entrance of his house, and you have with you a gift. This is the offering. It's not a sacrifice. It's not for sin. This is an offering. You are at the entrance of this home with the offering, and you are bringing it to the king. Why? So that you may be accepted. See, the, uh, the interesting thing here to realize is that just because this offering is at play doesn't mean five other sacrifices or offerings weren't going to also happen at the same time. And so I want you to think about this. This is the, the tabernacle. This is the house of the Lord. This is the Lord's palace. This is his portable throne room, his portable Mount Sinai. And you, as the offerer, are going before him like you're having dinner at someone's house who's very wealthy, and you have brought with you a nice bottle of wine or a gift basket. And essentially, you're trying to be a good guest, and you're trying to honor your host. That's exactly what's being pictured here. 
So when you go to the house of the Lord, when you go to the tent of meeting, when you go to the tabernacle, you bring your offering to the entrance that you may be accepted. Then it says, he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering. Actually, it technically says he shall lean on the burnt offering is what it would be more strictly in the Hebrew. He shall lean on the burnt offering. I don't know if that's significant, but I just feel like it is, okay? He shall lean on the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Okay, we're going to talk about atonement. What is atonement? Now, um, when you study the Bible, uh, you know, there's a lot of people in this room who probably, you study the Bible, you just read the Bible. That's great. You should do that. Then maybe some of you, you want to go a little bit deeper, and maybe you're doing word studies on the internet, and you're used to something called the Strong's Concordance. That's good. Strong's Concordance is good. But it's kind of like your bottom level of lexicon tools. What you realize as you go deeper into language is that languages are nuanced, right? We all know this. And if you speak two languages, you know how complicated language can be. When we lived in Spain, I'll tell you the most difficult part of language, in my opinion, besides speaking, was this, getting jokes, getting jokes so hard that there would be a room of Spaniards and they would all be laughing uncontrollably and I'd be like, I don't get it. I have no idea what's going on. Because there's nuances to language that we miss. Well, the word atonement, you have to remember in the original Hebrew is just consonants. The vowel pointings were added later. The word for atone, kapor or kafor, kfr or kpr, depending on how you have it written, it's, those are the only consonants that are there. But these words, this word specifically, or these consonants, I should say, are a homonym. Now, a homonym is words that um, they look the same, but they can have different meanings. And what I mean by that is read and read. They both have the same root. It's something to do with a book, but I read versus I read have a different meaning, right? Or litter and litter, or lead and, you know, these kinds of ideas. Okay, so the, the consonants used in a tone, there's actually four or five different words that it could be, but they all have certain nuances that go to the same world, okay? So when we hear atone, let's be honest, what's the word that you think of with atonement? Forgiveness. Isn't that the word that we all think of with forgiveness? But that's not what this word means. This word here doesn't mean forgiveness. A, a, a closer use of this word is found in Exodus. You can write this down if you want. Found in Exodus, I have it written in very small print, hold on. Exodus chapter 30, beginning in verse 11, when God is talking about a census tax. And if you read it in the ESV, it's going to say that God gave them a census tax. They had to pay half a shekel, and this was to fund the building of the tabernacle. And he says you need to give a census tax of a half a shekel to ransom, to ransom your life. Now, there's no sin at play in Exodus chapter 30. That's not the point of the chapter, and that there's, that's not the point of the chapter here as well. You see, because the root of this word really, I think it comes from ancient Akkadian, and it actually means to wipe clean or to purge, all right? And so the idea here is that you're coming atoned, 
you're coming with this, this offering to atone to just kind of wipe the slate clean between you and the king. And so when we look at the word atonement in the book of Leviticus, I want you to realize that there's two uses of atonement. The first use is a use for purification. And the idea there is that sin is constantly defiling the king. Sin is defiling the camp. Sin is defiling your house. Sin is defiling you. And so you need to be cleansed or purged. And the second use of atonement is ransom, which means to pay the price. That's why that idea of ransom paying the, the, the tax, right? So you're paying the price, reparation to the Lord. This is judgment, okay? Now, what I want you to realize is that those two versions already have existed, but you probably have just overlooked them. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. In other words, we see both uses of the word atonement in New Testament theology, but we probably were unaware that there actually were two aspects of atonement happening, okay? And so those are the two purposes of atonement, a ransoming, which has to do with a payment for sin, as well as a purification. I'm just going to keep reading here. It says, then, in other words, you're going to bring this offering It's going to wipe the slate clean between you and the king. Then you can actually interact. Verse 5. This gets bloody. Then he shall kill the bull. All right? I want you to look at your journal if you have it or if you have your Bible or your phone, whatever. Who shall kill the bull? Who is he? Who? The person bringing. How many of you thought that you just kind of like brought the bull and then the priest would do everything? Now, you say, well, that's pretty gnarly. No, I want you to realize this. We are so desensitized because we live in a culture, we go to the store, we buy our chickens, we buy our, our, you know, they're already made into hamburger shapes, right? I want you to picture, pardon me if it makes you uncomfortable, I want you to picture your 12-year-old having to go to the temple and slice the bull's throat. Why? Why? Because sin is serious and God is holy. Do you realize if you're responsible to kill that sacrifice yourself, how much more serious this becomes? I have two daughters. Imagine that. You say, that is morose and dark. You better believe it. Because sin is serious and God is holy. The offerer had to kill the animal. Man, woman, child. Okay? Husbands, couldn't do this for your wife the same way you can't receive the Lord Jesus' salvation on behalf of your wife. Okay? So think about the heaviness of this. He shall kill the bull before the Lord, and then the priest takes the blood and he throws it against the sides of the altar. He doesn't sprinkle it. This is a bloody ordeal. He throws the blood against the side of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he, again, the referent in he is the person who's doing the offering. He shall flay, he shall skin the animal. So you, as the offer, you bring the bull, you bring this to the Lord, you're holding that bull, you're holding the rope, and you're there praying that you're, you would be accepted in order to offer this. 
and then the offering is accepted. The priest says, yes, you can do it. It's unblemished, blah, 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 blah. You bring that a couple paces back to the altar. The bull, the bull is killed. Then you have to skin it. Then you have to butcher it. And then the priest lays it out on the altar for consumption on your behalf. This is heavy stuff. You don't believe me? Go read the Net Bible, 70,000 translations notes. It will tell you if you look at the Hebrew, the referent, the referent is the person who's bringing the offering. Okay? And so these are the nuances that we miss. This is a bloody, bloody business. It says, Aaron's son shall arrange the pieces. And the fat and the wood and entrails, they're going to wash. The legs, they're going to wash. And the priest shall burn it all on the altar as a burnt offering, comma, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now, those commas are there. Your translators have done an excellent job. They know what they're doing. And so what is a burnt offering, comma, a food offering with a pleasing aroma. And so in other words, a burnt offering, which is what we're talking about, is a food offering, and the purpose is what? That it's pleasing to the Lord. Its purpose is not expungement of your sin. Its purpose is that it's pleasing to the Lord. So there's some nuances that we need to realize. The whole burnt offering was the most costly offering because it was 100% burned. You didn't get to keep any of it. The priest didn't get to keep any of it. It was 100% given to the Lord. The primary purpose of it is what we would say cautionary atonement. Cautionary atonement. In other words, I am going to the king's house. I'm bringing a gift I'm going to give it to him. This is cautionary. Now, what is the significance of that? This is not atonement for specific sin. That comes later in Leviticus. This is a sort of general atonement for human sinfulness. Okay? This comes from an awareness of how holy God is. I am at the entrance of the tent of meeting. I'm hyper aware of his holiness. And so this is essentially sacrifice, not because you sinned, but, or see, I already did it. This is offering not because you sinned, but this is offering because you are what? A sinner. Okay? The difference between activity and essence. We tend to only think through activity. I did that. I didn't do that. But what about who you are? Okay? This is an offering because of who God is and who we are. Second purpose that we see in this is it's sort of like uh, in the one commentary by Scalar that I told you guys about. It's sort of like an exclamation point. He says it's like an exclamation point for anything that you say or do. And so we see this throughout the Old Testament. I think it's Hannah. You know, she's praying for a son. She does a whole burnt offering. It's here's an exclamation point that I want to add to my prayer so that God knows how serious I am. Here's an exclamation point because I'm so thankful that God, he responded and he heard my cry. And so this, this exclamation point, it's a gift for the king, serious prayer requests right? Serious praises and celebrations. And so if we were going to summarize the purpose of this offering, it's that it celebrates and seeks the mercy and grace of a good God and king who is also a terrifying presence, okay? 
And this offering underscores the need for caution as we approach God. Now, I want you to realize that. After one paragraph, would you feel comfortable just strolling into the tabernacle with like your three-legged bull and being like, let's do this, you know, picking your nose while you're waiting for the priest? No, you'd be, you'd be terrified to do that. So I want you to really embrace that terror as we continue on. All right, so the next paragraph, if this is a burnt offering, it's from the flock, he goes through the same kind of thing. It's without blemish, he shall kill it, he shall cut it into pieces, Okay, so you're still, the offer has to do it. The third one is for the birds, is of the birds, rather. Um, this one you're pardoned from, by the way. The priest is the one who does this. The priest rips off its head, sprinkles the blood on it, and he gets rid of the entrails and all that kind of stuff, okay? So these are the three types of whole burnt offerings from the herd, lesser from the flock, lesser of the birds. Now, so what I want to do in the next 10 minutes is I want to ask this question, these two questions. How does this point to Jesus? And what does this mean for us? There's no way I'm going to summarize exhaustively how this points to Jesus. But I want to point out something here. Ephesians 5.2. He says, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Ephesians 5.2. Now you realize that right there, what that tells you from Ephesians 5.2, just from one day in Leviticus, is that Jesus' death had both aspects of being an offering and his death had aspects of being a sacrifice. Now what that leads me to believe as we begin going through Leviticus is that we are going to see fulfillment in each of these different sacrifices and offerings found in Christ, okay? And so, in other words, Christ goes before the Holy of Holies, right? He is accepted as an offerer and as an offering. The veil is torn, so he can enter in, and he enters in with and as the sacrifice to pour the blood upon the mercy seat. So realize that Christ is fulfilling all of the different aspects of this Levitical law code, okay? That is super significant, and I hope it's not boring to you because the Bible is awesome, okay? There is no way a bunch of random people made this up. This is a divine book. And so we see that as the different parts of this offering, we see that Jesus is the ultimate burnt offering because he's ransoming the sinner from judgment. He's cleansing the sinner from his sin and from his sinfulness once for all, as what the Hebrews author says, as both the priest and the sacrifice Hebrews 10.10, and by God's will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. But also we see that Jesus's offering as the whole burnt offering was essentially also an exclamation point that Jesus offers himself for atonement, but also as the ultimate picture of exclamatory worship and intercession. 
right? That Jesus, Philippians 2, 5 to 11 says that Jesus humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, because he loved God. He obeyed the Father. Everything the Father told him to do, he did. And so Jesus' life, death, offering, sacrifice, resurrection, it's this giant exclamation mark of Jesus' love for the Father. Now, we're going to unpack a hundred other things as we go through Leviticus about how Jesus fulfills and how Jesus points to. But the point is this. All of this points to Jesus. We look at the burnt offering. We say, this is weird. I'm glad we don't have to do that anymore. But it should be so much more than that in our hearts. So for us, I want to bring up three things. What does this mean for us? When we look at Leviticus 1, what do we get out of this? Well, we become deeply aware of our sinful nature, not just our sinful choices or activities of the weekend. We become deeply aware of our sinful nature, and we become deeply aware of God's holiness. We become deeply aware of those two things. As our understanding of God's holiness increases, and as our understanding of our own sinful nature increases, they get further and further apart, and that results in an awareness of a complete inability as a person or as a worshiper to achieve anything unless God does it for you and gives it to you and puts it in your hands, which is why salvation is by faith alone and by grace alone. You can't earn it because you're going you're gonna to be dead before you even get approved to do an offering. That's how holy God is. And so three things I want you to notice. One, we receive the results of Jesus' offering by faith. Atoning, purging, wiping clean. Jesus is heard. He's received by the Father. That's why it says that he shall go before the tent of meeting and he shall be accepted. Jesus was accepted. Jesus was heard. Jesus was received. He entered in to the holiest of holies as an ultimate exclamation. There's no greater sacrifice that could be offered. Jesus is a once-for-all sacrifice. And so the question is, have you believed that? Have you believed that? Have you, the Bible says, have you repented and believed? Have you turned from trusting in your own meager sacrifices to trust in Jesus' sacrifice? Have you stopped trying to impress God with your offerings and realizing that Christ has already gave the ultimate offering? Because that is the root of salvation. The second thing is this. Our response to Jesus is to live as a burnt offering. Okay? This is what we see. Philippians 4.18, Paul says, speaking about an offering that was given that was being passed on to those in need, he says that their money was a fragrant burnt offering offering to the Lord. And so there's this sense in which as we give of ourselves and our resources, as we steward our lives and our world, God receives that as a fragrant burnt offering and it is pleasing to him. So we still give sacrifice, offerings, whatever you want to say. We give these 
every day spiritually. That's why Paul says in Romans 12 that you are a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. Interesting, acceptable. See, all these words point back. So you, you are the thing that's being offered. You are the bull that's being offered. You are holy without blemish, and you are acceptable. So you will be accepted so that it can actually be given to the Lord. And he says, this is your spiritual worship. Giving your life. Surrendering. Those of you who are going through the Spirit Walk book. Surrendered life. Have you surrendered Have you surrendered to Jesus? And this is the third thing I want you to make note of. I realize we're a couple minutes late. I want you to imagine the terror of approaching God in this old covenant Levitical code. The constant feeling like you're never enough, your offering's not enough, your sacrifice isn't enough, you didn't do enough, you sinned too much. I want you to imagine... In a word, how would you describe the posture of a person's approach to God in that context? Just any word. Shout it out. Face down. What else? Humble. Frightened. I was going to say fearful. Now, here's what's interesting. Hebrews 4 says that in Christ, it commands us to have a new posture as we approach God. What's the new posture commanded in Hebrews 4? Bold. I mean, that makes me want to cry. Can you imagine the difference between those two things? That you go from being terrified for your life that you're going to be accepted to even be heard. And then the author of Hebrews says, now you boldly approach the throne of grace. You march right in. That's what Jesus' offering and sacrifice accomplished. That's why the author of Hebrews continues and says, therefore, let us draw near with confidence, not with fear, not with shame, not with guilt, no condemnation. Let us draw near because you don't draw near in your name. You draw near by the name of Christ. This is the work he's done. And the Old Testament serves as a giant signpost pointing to the beauty of what Christ accomplished on the cross and in the empty tomb. 